Hey everybody, it is episode 88 of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is Chris and Steve coming at you from Austin, Texas. How are you doing today, Steve? Doing fantastic. Happy to be in the booth. Face-to-face, first time in a while. It's been a little bit. So, yes, we are face-to-face on a warm day in Austin. Excited to be coming back at you with a continuation of a series we started two episodes ago in episode 86, talking about what does the race require. We did part one before, kind of getting through similarities in training for various race distances, as well as talking about the 800 and the mile And today we're going to keep working through that, getting to the 5K, the 10K, and hopefully the half marathon time, if time allows, as we continue this series. And and of course, we'll eventually get to all the way up to the marathon as well, depending on whether this is two or three parts or four parts. We'll see. Uh, But excited to be coming back at you with that training topic. And we'll be drilling into at least the 5K and 10K and half today. So... Steve, we've got to jump into our intro here, and this is your opportunity to gloat. (laughs) (laughs) Why would I do that? To talk about your prediction coming true. I got to gloat a little bit about my prediction of Emma Coburn getting beat by another American female, and you get to gloat now about your prediction related to the pole vaulter Mondo Duplantis, who had an absolutely insane vault at the European Championships to win gold as an 18-year-old and to set the number two vault all-time outdoors, number four all-time in any venue, under 20 world record as well. He won jumping 19 feet 10 inches, (laughs) I believe a five-inch PR for him. He cleared that, that new height on his first attempt. Did you see the jump? I did. Did it's you see how his knees were close on the ascent? You know, he got too close to the, yeah, too close to the bar on the front end. But his hip clearance. Oh, his hip clearance was absurd. <laughs> I mean, he's got. Room. He's also super long in he's those femurs. He's, he's got, got long room. femurs. Yeah, yeah and he's got room to for get sure. more for sure. But he beat Renaud Lavillani, who's the French world record holder. Olympic uh, gold medalist, an Olympic gold world medalist. champion, so, world everything. His best competition yeah, in the yeah, world. Exactly. Yes. So he had legit competition, one gold jumping in pole vault vernacular, six meters, .05 and five hundredths, and did it with panache and and beat a legit field. Renault ended up third on the day, so he didn't have a great day. But still, this shows you that... He may end up being the best pole vaulter in the world this year, which is unbelievable. Definitely exceeds my expectations and also shows you that he's got potential for more. Way more. I mean, he's so he's he's built perfectly as a vaulter, but he's still missing some of that key upper body strength. You can tell he's still growing into that long, lanky frame he has. When you compare him to the Frenchman, they are he's slight. He's small in comparison, about the same height, but very differently built, less shoulders. I think that helps him in the runway. It helps him in his liftoff. It helps him as he he transitions from that, getting his feet up over his head. But it makes it very hard as he's ascending and holding that bar and keeping it. You see him, the bar moves on him a little bit as he's moving up. So it's really exciting to think about what he can do. Um, And, you know, to uh, to all our Europeans especially to our Swedes who are out there claiming him as your own. 
back up, back up. He's <laughs> still an American. He's from Louisiana. I know he's competing for another country, but he's out. He's as much. He's coming back to college. He's jumping for LSU. And yeah. can you imagine being a vaulter and knowing you're going to go head to head with this guy? Like th- this is this is who's going to be the NCAA champion next year? I right, think we can. Right. I don't. You know, the funny thing though is the vault is such a gamer's. It's such a head game, and there's so many other strategic strategic situations that have to play in. But this kid, man, yeah, I'm not gonna gloat. I'm just gonna say, it, it, yours was a bigger stretch, I think, of a of a of a statement than mine necessarily. But just because I knew this guy was gonna be good, but we didn't expect it to be this soon. So not this soon. It's yeah, amazing. I mean, I think we both said in that prior conversation that he would get there. I didn't think it would be this year, but he he basically did it. A couple of notes that are interesting or, or cool. One is that he got a massive hug from Renaud Lavillani, who's been a mentor of his and who was as excited for his vault as he was, which is really cool to see. And I think in a lot of those field events where you're not competing head to head at the exact same time, there's a lot of camaraderie within those fields that is really powerful. And to see the other vaulters get excited not just Renault, but others to get excited for him was really, really cool. Go find the vault. You can search it on YouTube, uh, European Championships, Mondo de Planis, and just watch it. It's, it's unbelievable. It's an unbelievable athletic <laughs> demonstration that also shows the excitement and the panache of this kid who's got, who's got all the skills to ultimately break the world record and We'll see that, I'm sure, over the next several years as he continues to develop. The other things that are interesting is that technically this is an American record, even though he was competing in a Swedish vest. The rule book says <laughs> that if you're an American citizen, you can own an American record regardless of whether you compete for the U.S. And so it doesn't really account for dual citizens. And apparently a year ago in the USATF meetings and one of the athlete advisory committee members, Jeff Hartwig, raised this exact point. And so Sandy Morris, who's also pole vaulter, U.S. pole vault champion on Twitter, came out and said literally a year ago, Jeff Hartwig asked in the meeting, <laughs> what if Manu Duplantis jumps 6.05 in a Swedish <laughs> vest and gets the world and gets the American record? What then? Is that a loophole that we want to? close right and the response from the usatf officials was how likely is that sort of (laughs) brushing it off and sure enough not only does it happen but it happens at the exact height the guy said in the meeting a year ago (laughs) and so that's kind of cool but he'll be an american record holder they'll ratify it i believe they do that in december and you know according to the rules now there's I mean, this is an American record. They might change it. It might be the Mondo rule. They might ultimately change it from here out. But he already owns an American junior record because of the same rule at the junior level. So it's not unprecedented, you know, in this situation for him. But just kind of an interesting loophole that a Swedish, an athlete that competes for Sweden as a dual citizen will be the American record holder in the pole vault. And... And I'm sure we'll continue to extend that American record as he progresses in his career. As as you said, with that hip clearance, he's got inches to spare for sure. For sure. And so we 20 shall is see. going down, which is, you know, in the U.S., that's a big number. I mean, in the, in the world, it's a big number, but because they use 
primarily the metric system we won't i mean he's like less he's just a little over an inch away from breaking that 20 foot barrier but um yep amazing just amazing so go check that out and yes we're talking about pole vaulting because it's still it's <laughs> awesome <laughs> and the the next thing we got to talk about also from the european championships is another amazing performance by a teenager 17-year-old Jakob Ingbert Ingbritsen, Norwegian athlete. We've talked about him before. We talked about his result at Prefontaine, I believe, when he ran the mile there. 17 years old, won the gold medal at the European Championships in the 1500, and then came back the next day, I believe, and did it in the 5K, closing the 5K in a 54-second final lap. <laughs> to crush the competition in the European champs, double gold for him, beating both of his older brothers, Heinrich, who's 27, Philippe, who's 25, or Philip, who's 25, Jakob's 17, but beat both of his older brothers. Heinrich was in the 15. They're both in the 15, or all three were in the 15, and he was only competing against Heinrich in the 5K as Philip had an injury pop up from the 15. But, but anyway... We got an email from a listener from Norway who said, hey, guys, you need to talk about these brothers, which we had briefly, but now is a good time to talk about them again. Unbelievable double gold, first of all, by itself. But the fact that it was from a 17-year-old kid who beat his two older brothers in, in competing in the same race, and the 15 at least, it's crazy and cool and huge and shows you that this kid also has some pretty amazing potential that will play out on the world stage as he grows and gets older. So what do you think about Jakob's performance? I mean, what? did you get to watch the race? Did you watch yes. any of it? Yes. So the way he took that lead, it like he took the lead like 600 out almost, maybe 500 out, 600 out, almost like, okay, I'm just going to help my brothers. You could yep. look that way. Like yep. he was just going to do the work and sacrifice himself. And he stayed, and it looked that way all the way to the finish line, like he was just expecting the world to come <laughs> by him. He was falling apart that last 10 meters. Yeah. I thought he was going to get caught. Yeah. And, of course, the pole, the 800 meter, I can never say his name. It's, like, really long. But the, he's moved up from the 800 to Scott, the— yeah. Scott. Yeah. No, no, not that one. A different no, guy. Okay. He he yeah. was is a different pole. He— yeah. Lewandowski or something okay, like yeah, that. Yeah, he closed yeah. like a maniac in, to get yep. second and but just couldn't ca catch Jakob. The, the way he won it was also impressive. Just pretty ballsy, out there, doing work, running the best race he could possibly run, trying to put himself in a position not necessarily to win the race, but to run the best possible race he could run that day. There's a lot more there. And when you watch the 5K the next day, much more cagey, much smarter about the way he launched himself, positioned himself, and ran to the finish. Um Hopefully he stays in the 15. I mean, he, the ability to compete at the five um, will be challenged, although the men's five is a little bit more open than it has been in the past. It's, uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But, man, the cool thing is just seeing a 17-year-old get a, get a big big win. And, you know, we don't really pay attention to the European Championships that much. We don't have a whole lot of, in, a whole lot of stake in it. But with these two great performances by the youth, it's basically raising the bar and is showing the way the bar is raising around the world at this level to where I do think that while we've seen this sort of comp complete control of the middle distance, distance races, it's happening in the middle distances much more than the long distances yet, but the control of the, e of the, of the East African coalitions and their dominance, um, whether they be 
whether they are representing the country that they are running or not, it has been, you know, basically Ethiopians and Kenyans that have been winning everything um, with an occasional Ugandan here or there. But we're, what we're seeing now is that at that shorter distance from the five, from the 800 meter to the 1500 meter, everybody's in play. And with young people at this age running races like this and competing like this, it's a good, good sign. It's not like we're going to suddenly see, not predict that a Kenyan will win almost every distance from the top to the bottom. But we're we're um, the rest of the world's awoken and they're coming for major medals and championship games. And you know, with Centrowitz showing the way from winning a gold medal and what was happening even before that. You know, where we had athletes that were getting in there and sneaking in there at the major championships, seeing these other runners run at this level at such a young age has got to be great for not only the sport generally, but Americans as well as the men. We've talked about this, Chris, now a few times. We've seen such a dominance of women in the eight and the 15 in terms of us competing with the world level. We need to be seeing that on the men's side. And hopefully it's the results like these that will wake up these young men and to get them to believe and our boys to get them to start to believe that they can compete at the international level. Yeah. And, and this one, I mean, to me, the story of Jakob is interesting for a lot of reasons. You know, one, he is coached by his dad and they, the brothers are. And so there was, I saw some interviews after this, these wins where he, the dad was asked, what do you tell them in terms of strategy? you know how do you manage and balance <laughs> the need for three athletes in that equation and he says i don't he lets the boys the brothers figure it out themselves and so it it was obvious to me in that 15 that Jakob's role in their conversations was to play a little bit of a you know foil in the middle you know to press a little bit further out and give those other guys a slingshot basically to key off of philip i think by all accounts the middle brother was the favorite of the three if you just look at it on paper but he had had the injury from the prelim that kind of played out to where he faded in the final and but Jakob went with it anyway and then suddenly you know like like you said it was almost like he was waiting for his brother to roll around him or someone <laughs> or somebody yeah. it just didn't happen but then the but then the movement from that place of like unexpectedly sort of winning to suddenly in his post-race interview after the 15 being like, okay, well, shit, now I can win the five. You know, I think he made a comment like, well, you now I know I, maybe I can win the five. And so <laughs> it kind of shifted his mentality to, okay, I can win both of these things. And it was clear in his strategy with the five that it was like, all right, game on. I'm, I'm, I'm going to race for the win myself. So, and then he delivered with that 54 second final lap. Off of a relatively tactical race. He's such a beautiful runner, too, Chris. I oh, mean, yeah. his mechanics so are so much better. His brothers, Philippe's is really good, too. Henrik is like a really, he's not, he's tiny, he's a small guy, but he's, he's much more compact and he doesn't have that loping, open stride. And I mean, Jakob, his, his forward lean is almost like, I mean, it's like he's falling down almost. It's just absolute poetry and motion watching him run. If anybody should, we should link to that video so people can watch that 15 in the way he held people off. But it was, he's, he's got a lot more there, Chris, a whole lot more there. Yeah. And I think Philip, Philippe, Philip does too. The, the info I was reading about him was that while the other two brothers got into athletics a little bit earlier and Jakob has been doing this since he was nine, 10, 11, Philippe was a soccer player primarily early on, so his transition into focusing on athletics didn't come until high school. 
And so his development is a little bit behind the others, at least from what I understand. And so there's also this thought that Philip Philippe is also not someone to write off as it comes, you know, as it comes to competing on the world stage, especially now that he's seen what his brother (laughs) is going to do. And what does that mean for him? Right. I mean, they're training partners, but they are competitors as well. I would love to see what training is like um, in Oslo for those for all of them. Um, be yeah. interesting and think about like a Rio final with two out of these three brothers in there potentially well there was a really huge story about whether or not they were going to go one two three in the final there was a lot yeah. of discussion about whether that would be the case and of course um, nobody even they were saying the, the chances are just so <laughs> slim it's too hard in the but, but the way it flipped and the way that Jakob won is just it's, it's cool. a storybook it's awesome so cool yeah so I'll find those videos as well as the Mondo video and link it in the show notes Final thing before we transition into our main topic, got to talk about two of our favorite female athletes in the sport, Shalane, of course, who just launched her new book, Run Fast, Cook Fast, Eat Slow, sort of the follow-on sequel cookbook to her first book, Run Fast, Eat Slow, that was released this week, and you can get it on Amazon and so forth, but this is a a cookbook that focuses on the same themes that she had in her first cookbook, but but more with the idea of, okay, what are the meals that can be done quickly and with speed for those that have might have a busy lifestyle? So definitely check that out. She also very smartly paired that launch with an announcement that she's going back to New York and will be competing there to defend her title. New York also uh, announced some other American athletes. Ali Kiefer is going to be back there after finishing fifth. I'm and, excited about that. And and then Des as well in the mix for New York. So so that's a cool, exciting American field there in New York. It's clear that Shalane didn't know if she would have the fire. But one thing she said in an interview I saw this week was that if she didn't have teammates, she would mm. already be retired. But yeah. this ability to help Shelby get her American record, this ability to jump in and help those other athletes in workouts has kind of reignited the fire, gotten her back on her game. And she said she was doing laps, you know, I don't know what version of repeats they were doing, but she was doing faster than she's done in eight years with the other babes the other day. So she calls her, she calls herself the grandma of the group, but she clearly still has wheels and don't sleep on Shalane to repeat. I mean, it could happen. So also let's, Keep in mind, too, just trying to play the devil's advocate here a little bit. <laughs> she did also win a world marathon major. Like, <laughs> come on, why? why? Right. Like, not only is it the chance to do it again, but it's also all the paydays that come down the line. Right. She'd be foolish. Right. It's it's not just altruism going sure, on here, folks. Sure, right? There's also a little bit of yeah, and take her, your come up and you pay you how many years of yeah. self support. You know, uh, you know, while she was not she, while she was probably one of the best paid American distance runners over the history, um, she was that still is not six figures probably for her. Maybe it was all along, but early on in her career, it wasn't. I'm sure she got, that's for appearance fees. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we're, she's in a position where she really does get that chance to now, right. Reap the rewards of all the training and all the work she did and the benefit of getting that win. I mean, she, and she won that race, Chris, there's no doubt about it. Yes. We did have a little bit of a, you know, we had a, some, some woman issues that played out in that race that maybe made it, but she was there ready to attack and attacked in the way that she needed to. So um, anyway, I'm excited. I, I'm eating a lot healthier these days, Chris. So I actually might pick this 
cookbook up. I don't know. That's kind of weird for me to even think about. There you go. Mac and cheese is not <laughs> the only thing I eat these days. <laughs> nice. So checked out book out, but the other little bit of running gossip we got to throw out there because you know drama in our sport isn't plentiful enough is that there was some twitter sort of uh drama is not the right word but some the twitter rumor mill was flying earlier this past week as desiree linden posted a tweet about basically doing 500 300 and 400 repeats and asking where the other zero was because she's used to longer repeats. So she kind of made a joke about doing these short repeats and wondering where the other zero was that they should have been longer as she is a marathoner. That same day, Shalane posted about doing a Bowerman Babe workout, doing 500, 400, and 300 meter repeats with Jerry Schumacher and the Bowerman Track Club. (laughs) So there was some... Twitter rumor mill going of people putting those tweets side by side and wondering is 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 Des somehow flirting with the BTC at all, which I think is unlikely. But you never know. At now, this what point. were the distances again, Chris? Do you remember? Five hundred, four hundred, three hundred meter repeats. So here's the thing: three hundred and four hundred meter repeats are dime a dozen. No one would make any thought about that. But it is highly unusual <laughs> to see five hundred meter repeats anywhere. Right. I mean, I see it in eight hundred meter runners. We talked about that a couple couple weeks ago. Right. Occasionally, you'll see it in a fifteen hundred meter runner because they run a distance that has a variable of you know by by a division of three, multiply by three, and you get the number. So you do see those distances, but highly <laughs> unusual for marathoners to be running together? to on the same <laughs> day. Yeah. With a 500-meter repeat, there is something to these rumors, folks. Uh, that's all I'll say. I'm not going to go any further. Just to say that on the face of it, it looks a little looks a little unusual because of the because of that run distance. It's yeah. not typical to see that. Well, and you can imagine if you're Desiree Linden looking at Amy Hastings, Craig, Gwen Jorgensen, Shalane Flanagan. That would be a pretty damn good training group. <laughs> you know what and I mean? you just left your coach yeah. and your program. I mean, you, you, she yeah. is sponsored by another. It would mean changing, potentially changing and brands, although you never know. I mean, BTC is Nike sponsored and they've never had a non-Nike athlete. But because of the success that they're having, maybe Jerry can go go to them and be like, guys, this is what we're doing, you know? It's Work gonna it help. out. It's going to help us all. Yes. You know, in the, in the long run and get our Nike athletes on the team in a better spot. So you never know. I you mean, do he, never know. He can, he's got blank checks to write over there with all the stuff he's, all the success they're bringing to the table for Nike. So you never know. Yeah. And, and if you look at it from a business move, um, the pockets at Nike are so deep that regardless of, they could make it, you know, you look at a legacy athlete, you know, we talk about legacy athletes sometimes, Chris, where an athlete runs for one brand. Like we talked with Dina with her ASICs contract and her staying with. She was with Reebok early on, but she basically ran for ASICs all throughout her career. And she stayed an ASICs athlete. She's got a ASICs jacket on her what, that yeah. she's wearing on the cover of her book. Um, but the one company that can trump legacy in all ways, shapes, or forms is Nike because they can basically pay for that legacy and, and make a commitment to that. So it could be a scenario where you see that, where she finishes up her contractual obligations so that Brooks can, and you know she's that kind of person as well, that she would continue to see through. So who knows? Um, it is now that we've seen this, 
we have that ability to be like, oh, there was something to it if that does play out. Right. If it plays out, it needs to play out soon because she doesn't have very many more opportunities. So it would be probably seeing her in New York. If this is if these rumors are true, is this a unveiling at New York or is it just speculation, mad speculation, and yeah. who cares? Who and knows? it could also be a scenario where she was in Portland for some reason and they said, hey, come out. Yes, you know, and she just jumped in, and they didn't—they didn't make a big deal out of it. You if know she's I mean? coachless, then that yeah. would totally make sense yeah. as well, so right? It could, exactly, it could have been that too. But regardless, it makes for some interesting questions, and we'll see how it goes and see where Desi lands from a coaching standpoint. Uh, lastly, we've got to talk about Kara Goucher's new book. She and Chelaine re- released their books on the same day. I don't know if that was accidental or intentional, but Kara Goucher released her training journal or confidence journal. That she's call that's she's calling strong, with it's it's a training slash confidence journal basically along the the lines of what we talked about with her when she was on our episode episode thirty one, where she talked about having a basically a daily journal where she wrote the good things that happened in each day or in each workout and tried to pull the positives even if she had a tough day or tough workout. And how important that was for her to keep her mindset in the right place. And so now she's built basically a, a confidence journal, a training journal to help you do the same thing if you'd like to emulate that. And it's got, from what I understand, quotes in it, inspirational quotes from it. It's got snippets from athletes in her world who've contributed. And so it's just an inspirational piece that is also a useful tool that can help frame your mind in the right way as she talked about on that episode. So something cool to, to, to check out. And to me, it's just exciting to see two athletes that have had success in our sport that are contributing beyond in ways that not only contribute to the sport and, and help us all get better as athletes, but also give them a career after, after, or, or show them a path for a career after they hang up their you know, they're competitive flats. And so it's just cool to see them paving that path for athletes in the future, kind of like Lauren Fleshman has done and others to show that, Hey, you know what? We can, we can build a plan that shows other athletes when they retire from the sport, how to continue to make a living. Yeah, it is. It's really, um, and there's an op that what's awesome is that there's a market for this, Chris, that there's a market, that there's people who are paying attention and who yeah. care about it and that there are opportunities, as you said, for people to have a, a career post career. Um, and I'm, 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 it, it's really exciting and it just shows that we do, our sport is getting, even if we still are not really quite breaking into the, uh, ESPN, um, <laughs> you know, sports center, uh, we're in Sports Center only when bad shit happens or crazy shit happens, right? right? But we are there is still if you guys continue to vote with your wallets and vote with your dollars, more of these opportunities to, for these folks to have, for the sport to become more and more relevant and to be part of our everyday experience, um, as it is in Europe, as it is in other parts of the world, would be really really cool and it's it's awesome. Yeah, so go check out those two books, Strong from Kara Goucher and Run Fast, Cook Fast, Eat Slow. From Shalane, both useful resources. All right, see, let's turn our attention to continuing our series on what the race requires. We we got to the only through the 815, which I'm sure most of our listeners are thinking, 
why would I ever <laughs> want to train for that? Because I think a lot we've got a lot of half marathoners and marathoners in the mix. But we just wanted to give you that level of race just to give you context, both for what you might see in competitive athletes that are doing those races and think about how they might be training, but also just in case you might want to get crazy and do a mile training block, what that might look like. Regardless, I had a whole lot of fun just was pontificating fun. Yeah, about yeah, this exactly. subject. So. And, so, <laughs> and so anyway, but also, you know, then just kind of explain some of the similarities too. So as we roll into this next part, we're going to cover it in kind of two pieces. We're going to do the 5K as a standalone, and then we're going to do the 10K in half together, which like some might surprise some people in terms of how we're grouping things, but we'll talk a little bit about why we did that in a second. But before we get to the 5K, I did want to remind people the similarities across all these distances from A to marathon. We talked about two primarily, two primary themes that really thread all of these races. This is one is just the need for aerobic development, using volume as a tool to build your aerobic engine. And then two, the need, regardless of the race you're working on, is to maintain some economy work, some really fast, shorter work year-round to make sure you don't lose that edge regardless of whether you're doing the eight where you definitely need it and the marathon where you need to not lose it, <laughs> basically. Yeah, you want to stay. What we're looking for economy is not only like what we call good biomechanics, Chris, because you do see better biomechanics with folks that are have that strength, but it's also of the nervous system, of the aerobic system, the way our capillaries work, the way the way that our blood cells work, the way that our lungs work, all of that, both what's happening in the body and then what's also happening sort of throughout it benefits greatly. Also, at the end of a marathon, what I see primarily happening with so many athletes, Chris, and I know you've experienced this. You discussed this recently in one of our podcasts about how your body doesn't break down as much. We're excited about some work we've been doing with our team road group with a CrossFit gym that we're that we're working with where they're doing some CrossFit work because we believe that what's going to happen at the end of their rate, that what we'll see the benefit from that is they'll stay healthy throughout the program, but more importantly, over that last six miles, we'll see less breakdown in their biomechanics. And so having good mechanics, it takes having good mechanics for that breakdown not to happen. So you have to add both the speed work and have the strength work to make those things stretch to the marathon. But I think they are they're unknown. Not many people recognize how important that kind of work is to the success of a marathoner. And we give it short shrift mostly because the discussion of working on form or biomechanics, which we should probably discuss at some point as a standalone podcast, is just so problematic and difficult. And it's really N of one. It, 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 that stuff comes down to what's happening with each individual athlete and having someone pay attention to what's going on with you. It is labor intensive it, you have it, there's a there's a lot of knowledge that needs to be brought to bear and it's not done in it's not done in some broad sweeping generalizations although a few broad sweeping generalizations can be used primarily it's like just working on the individual and and seeing what's there so um here's a great way to work on your mechanics without actually having to go do form yeah. class or biomechanic work yeah, and we, you know, and I'll remind people about our interview with Jay Dishery, getting that book, Running Rewired. You can actually do the individual assessments in his book, which actually get to some of these things. But before we jump into the 5K, I did want to also mention an interesting, along these lines, an interesting article from Alex Hutchinson this past week, and I'll link to it 
where he highlighted some intel from a study that was recently done on biomechanics in Canada. And the basic concept was they wanted to, they took a, a sampling of runners and they wanted to see if there were some certain biomechanical markers that they could point to to differentiate for, and I'm going to use these terms just for, uh, for simplicity's purpose, but everybody knows what I believe about the word slow. But <laughs> basically they wanted to see if there was a difference between faster runners and slower runners in terms of biomechanics. If there were certain things they could point to to say, you know, this thing is more present in people that tend to be faster. This thing is, is more present in, in those that tend to be less fast. I'll do it that way. And the most interesting, and so I'll link to that article. He talks about being able to create this, what he called hobby jogger index, which is sort of a let's run.com term that probably is, is used too negatively. But, um, but anyway, but it's this idea that you can, by looking at somebody's stride and how they move through space, you can identify without knowing anything else about them what their potential is as an athlete. And one of the biggest things, one of the biggest insights from the study had nothing to do with specific movements as in if you lift your knee this high, you're going to be in this category or, you know, things that you could kind of objectively point to. It was more about repeatability in a given athlete's stride. So what they were seeing was that the athletes tend to be on the faster end of the scale versus the less fast end of the scale had more repeatability in terms of their stride movement. So their strides were, were more consistent from step to step, not just, you know, early in the running, but later in the running as well. They stayed more consistent throughout, which is exactly why you do that economy work is to basically become more efficient so that you're not only more consistent in your strides early, but you're able to hold it together better later when things start to break down, when you're tired at the end of a race. So it's, it's important. And, and all of that economy work, the strides, the short repeats, sometimes the hill repeats, that kind of stuff is going to help you work those elements. And you should be doing some form of that year round. And as I said, I think in our speed workout podcast, at a minimum, weekly strides is an equation that you should work in to, to work on that. We talked about in that episode other workouts you can do as well to layer in more economy work year round, but that's it's important. And so that's important whether you're doing an eight hundred or a marathon. But anyway, just want to remind you guys of the similarities and reemphasize that. But let's drill into the five K, Steve, which and we've talked about this before about the similarities between the five K and the marathon in terms of the level of intensity you kind of have to bring to it and the mental challenges that it brings in slightly different but eerily similar forms. And so let's just, I want to remind people framing of that framing first. Like why is the 5K so similar to the marathon? Because the 5K in some, in ways that the 1500, the race distance below it, that's considered um, the standard. That's what we have at the World Championships at the Olympic Games. Like the 1500 is 
a rarely run as a right on the edge of what you're physiologically capable of. We've seen, our, I mean, of course, we have the fourth sub four minute mile that was run by Sir Roger Bannister that we saw that limit being pressed at that occasion. But so often we see in international events that that race is a lot of jogging around and then kicking at the end. Um, and then the 10,000, which is the race distance above it that people run um, at the international level, is also a race that sort of is a lot less on the edge. There's a lot of ebbing and flowing. Some You can see people be making big moves and what we call, call surging and then dropping back. Um, rarely do you find that the very best 10,000-meter runner uh, for all every single one of those meters, all 10,000 of them, wins the race. There's always some kind of other thing that happens. So I say all that as a preamble that in so often in the 5,000, except for the U.S. championships, which is the stupidest race in the world, why the U.S. championships 5,000. The U.S. championships 5,000 is always a kick. It's just like the 1,500. It's terrible. But other than that, you normally see runners running on the very edge of what they're physiologically capable for every one of those 5,000 meters. And it requires being present both physiologically and psychologically throughout the entire race. You don't get that chance to take a break, to take a, to take a, a rest. Um, you have to be on edge. And anybody that's run a marathon, they know how very easy it is to stay at, get out of your game physiologically or psychologically over the course of all 26.2 of those miles. And once you let that that laziness in, that sort of lazy mind in, it can be very problematic later on in the race. People who kind of fall asleep at 10, mile 10, mile 11, mile 12, find it, especially at a race like Boston, they find it very, very difficult to get themselves back in the game when it comes to lifting and making things happen. So in a lot of ways, physiologically and psychologically, these two races are sort of mirrors and it, they just are of a different duration, as I've said many times. Um, but the way that you kind of have to play it out, the first the first third of each one of these races is about getting yourself positioned, knowing what your paces are and trying to dial that in, hopefully being a little bit slower early on, but not too much slower, and then staying strong, staying focused, as I'll talk about a lot in the 5,000, what I call being going up and around, which we'll talk about a lot, Chris. Um, it's the same similar thing that happens in the marathon of staying present and making sure that you know where you're at, dial into what you're doing in whatever chunks that you've broken your race down into, whether they're mile chunks or 5K chunks. It's about being engaged and staying present and being competitive. And then finally, at the end, both these races come down to, very rarely does it come down to just a sustained, a, a big kick. It usually comes down to a sustained holding on um, at every level, whether you run your local 5K yourself or you're doing a time trial like some of our athletes will be doing this week, Chris, or you're running at the international level, you see folks that are pushing from a mile out, from three laps out to try to burn the kick out of people so much. And you, or in the marathon, you're just holding on because the physiological needs that the race requires pushes you to the edge there, no matter what paces you're running. Even if you run 10 minutes slower you, than what your goal time is for a marathon, you're still going to be feeling all that lactic and all of that fading or difficulty to close in a marathon. So I, I've had people who have disagreed with me vehemently about this <laughs> about this idea that these two are sister races, but um, my experience is having run both of them, they do seem like sisters to me. Well, and and I think they're sisters, and from a fear standpoint as well, at oh, least in my experience, sure. you know, I'm as afraid of a 5K as I am of a marathon, maybe more so, but... So, so there's anyway, so there's that piece too of just like that 
you know, how you have to approach it mentally to get over the fear of the pain that's about to come is, is very similar. Now, you know, last time in episode 86, we talked about the 8, the 15, where, you know, there's similarities in the, in that level to how you're putting together maybe a marathon program where you've got to do aerobic work, which includes general aerobic capacity building, but also aerobic strength and threshold work. But then you also have to do speed work that is unique to the race, kind of what does the race require piece? And you gave us a bunch of examples of 800, 1500 meter specific workouts that were tailored to the specific unique suffering that were involved in those events. And with the 5K, I want to start on that piece, like from a speed, to, you know, speed standpoint, uh, what is, what are the, what's the type of work people need to do? And as a coach myself, who has more experience coaching the 5K than, than I ever have the eight, the 15, I kind of break it down in its simplest forms into two categories when I'm talking about race specific speed work for the 5k, there's one category and, and these are overlapping potentially. So it's not necessarily that you couldn't have a workout that hit both, but there's one thing, which is you need people to be able to run the pace. And for a lot of our half marathoners and marathoners that are trying to improve their 5k pace and haven't done <laughs> a lot of work at that pace ever, they got to be able to run the pace. So that's sort of step one, perhaps, right? Step two is, or category two is, then they have to be able to string that together time and time again, lap or mile or whatever after mile, so that they can, you know, run that pace, but then string it together over three miles. And so, you know, those are the things you're trying to balance, is both the ability to actually physically be able to run the pace that, that they're trying to run, and then, and then be able to then string that together for three miles continuously you know versus being able to do it for one repeat or two repeats or whatever so with that as context or preamble let's talk give me some give me some notes or thoughts on 5k specific speed work well first let's frame this chris because i think that this is really important um your points are extremely well taken that so many of our marathoners don't have the skill set to even get down that when you ask them to do 200s or or 400s at their 5k pace um those who were athletes at a young age maybe like yourself who played soccer or who maybe ran track at junior high level or high school level um many of them have that skill set and you can tell that they that they've scratched that itch before they've worked those neuromuscular recruitment patterns but for our marathoners who were not athletes prior to starting it you and I both know this is this is the biggest challenge that we find with trying to do VO2 max work, Chris, because our athletes have not worked those neural pathways. They have not woken them up. Their biomechanics are poor. Their heel strikers or midfoot strikers, and it's hard to run a 5K 5K pace on your heels or your or your midfoot. So, first off, there are just physiological things that that are prob that are challenging for this. But let me put a bigger frame on it first. To run a really effective 5K, you need to be able to be wheelie or fast like a 1,500-meter runner, and you need to be strong as a, as a 10K runner. And trying, and that's why I decided, Chris, that I thought as we discussed this um, offline about how we wanted, did we want to put the 5K, 10K together, or do we want to put it on its own? Um, we, we, after discussion, you and I, we, just, we agreed that this race is so unique. 
it's very difficult to run well, um, and it and it's a it's an event that scares so many of our listeners, and it has this very unique. The 10K is much closer to a half marathon than the than the 5K is to the 10K, in my opinion. So, um, what we're doing, Chris, is we're going to be trying to stretch some wheels and make sure our athletes are fast enough to be able to run a good 1500 or 3K, but also be strong enough to be able to manage a good, hard, strong, well-run 10K. And so, with that in mind, there's a couple of basic buckets that I would talk about with workouts for an effective 5k. The first is neural pathways or getting those the, getting the lights turned on for those that body to make sure the tendons, ligaments and muscles are capable of doing what we're talking about. As I mentioned, we've got some folks as we did our pretty pretty focused speed development with our podcast training group and with our team road group here. We did that this summer. Chris, we did workouts we've never done before. We did mile pace work, we did 3k pace work. We turned the lights on for these athletes. And we had great success for those athletes that were able to compl- who were serious about it and took it really seriously. They saw PRs at their one mile time trial, and they're definitely going to see PRs at their 5K time trial because purely and simply, Chris, we turned those lights on and got them to be able to be to be able to be to facilitate those neural pathways and to make sure that they could use it, like they could actually use those muscles in that way. And many were surprised to find they could do that. They were, but that's what happens when you work. The, the the race down a, a notch, the, the race down from your original race goal or the race, two races down as we did with this group, we did mile pace and 3K pace. So the first thing is make sure you've done your strides, make sure you've done mile pace work and make sure you've done 3K pace work. Those things are really essential to being effective at running a good, a good, my, a good 5K. And I'll talk a little bit about specific workouts for that, Chris, in a second. I'm going to just complete the idea of what we're overall generally looking at. And then secondarily, what you need to be able to do is be strong enough to be able to clo- hold the paces that the, the neuromuscular recruitment patterns that you created, you need to be strong enough to be able to hold them all the way through 12 and a half laps or three miles plus a 200 in a race. Um, and that's a real big challenge um, for uh, as big a challenge it is to turn those lights on it's just as much of a challenge to stretch that all the way through an entire 12 and a half laps on a track or three miles on a road. Just as we talked about originally, Chris, it's just a hard race psychologically to hurt that much for that long. And so you have to do workouts, key workouts that don't give you a break. Um, Now, what are we talking about? So I'm going to talk in this context about sort of workouts that a half marathon or marathoner would be, would be thinking about in terms of adding a, 5k to it Chris if we want to we could spend a little time talking about if someone wanted to get really good at a 5k how they might do that but I'm going to first frame this sort of like half marathon or marathon are you doing a speed development phase and or you're wanting to stay sharp at this work throughout so two kinds two or three workouts that I would really suggest the first one is one that we do all the time Chris it's basically 12 times 200 meters with a 200 meter jog at your 5k pace and this is really a standard turn the lights on workout it's pretty easy to do more often than not the hardest part is just getting up to speed turning those legs over and getting them to go fast enough to what your goal time is for your 5k but the recovery on that that 200 meter recovery should be done just as easily as possible just as easy as possible to get fully recovered from it now, if somebody's done that workout two or three times, then we'll suggest one of our very favorite Team Rogue workouts, um, what we call the Aussie 5K, which we learned from the great Aussies that we know in our lives. And we've heard about this is a Monaghan, basically a workout that so many Australians have done. And, is, and we learned it from 
um, Lee Troop and from um, a number of other Australians who have been here. And they do this workout a lot, Chris. And it is basically the same workout, 12 times 200 with a 200 jog, except the change is instead of being a jog, we call it a float. And that float means you're going to try to run as quick as you possibly can on that recovery while still getting recovered enough to hold all 12 200 repeats at your 5K. So the standard is 200 meters at your 5K pace, no matter what, that's the key thing. In one of these sessions, you go really, really easy for your 200, and that should be the first three, four, five times you probably do this workout just to turn the lights on. And then the, the bonus work, or so the advanced level work of that, is to string 12 laps together where you go 200 at your 5K pace and you float 200 meters the really sweet thing about that Aussie 5K, Chris, and we've done this many times, it's a really good indicator for people. If they do this workout correctly, it's a really good indicator of what they can run for a flat, fast 5K. We've seen it play out many, many times where people thought, oh, there's no way that they could do that. If they can run that float, if they do that float appropriately, they should get to those last few reps where they're really tired and they're having a very hard time holding their 5K pace. And that really sort of indicates, there sort of, helps them get to get the feel of what a hard well run 5k is but also uh, gives them an idea sort of a marker for what they could run for a 5k so that workout is this that's basically two separate workouts but just it's the same one it's just done in two different ways that can really make a big difference for um getting a getting the lights turned on to be able to do a 5k and be effective at it one of the things i want to remind people in talking about this kind of work is that I think, especially for some of us half marathoners, marathoners who don't do a lot of 5Ks, we think about the 5K as somehow a lesser event, you know, because it's shorter, right? I mean, a lot of our world we judge by distance. And as we just talked about the similarities in those races, it's important to note that a really fast, well-run 5K is as as hard to achieve as a marathon PR in terms of the work that requires. And when you talk about the neural pathways development and muscular neuromuscular development that's required to get to faster and faster paces, that type of work takes time and it takes consistency over seasons, right? Especially for those athletes that are relatively new to sport or new to this sport who haven't had that fast twitch kind of stimulation maybe from a team sport or soccer or tennis or something like that earlier in their life and so to develop these neuro pathways as an adult if you haven't had that history in team sports or in another sport where you're using those fast twitch muscles it's it's hard and it takes (laughs) time and it's dangerous in a sense that it can cause injury or stress those muscles in a way that you know might tweak you a little bit and put you off in terms of, or, uh, you know, set you back a little bit in terms of training. So I just want to emphasize that if you're doing this over a 12 to 16, 16 week 5k block, awesome, you know, do that, but also understand that repeating this consistently throughout the year in the economy work that we talk about, and then this type of specific neuromuscular development work in 5k blocks at chunks, you know, from year to year is really, really important because you're going to continue to see development and you need to be patient with it and not expect that, oh, just because it's a short race, I'm going to be able to throw in some 200 meter repeats here and there and suddenly magically be able to be as efficient as possible at those paces, right? 
Absolutely. I mean, that's the second part of this, Chris. Like, first you turn the lights on, but then we need to do what the great um, uh, Canova, Renato Canova, told us, which is basically, in all events, the key thing is not that you can run the speed, it's that you can extend that speed over the entire distance, what he calls extension, which is one of the key fundamental training philosophies that is pretty new, relatively new in the way that people are thinking about training for the marathon. It's one. It's something that we've worked on here a lot at Rogue because of the way that we've seen our athletes really be able to do lots of 20-mile runs, but for some reason they can't finish the race the way that they need to. Is because we haven't done enough work extending the period of time that they can run at those paces. So the other work that I'm going to suggest to folks is stuff that... Um, the first thing is, is would, and I'm going to give you two different workouts that you can look at since I just gave you two, and th these are examples. The first would be um, once you've gotten facility at doing those 12, those 12 times 200 and maybe even after you've done um, an Aussie 5K, uh, or concurrently you can look at basically trying to do mile repeats at your 5K pace. Now, this is a big game changer. It is much more difficult to do four laps or a full mile at your 5K pace than it is to do 200. Now, you can walk your way up there the way... Some people would by extension. It was basically do 400 meters, then do 600 or 800 meters, then maybe do 1,200 meters or 1,000 meters, and then step up to the mile. Um, if you've got the time and you're doing a 16-week long 5K training block, that's what I would suggest is to give yourself the time to just ex extend little by little, step by step, the paces, the distance at which you run at that same pace, um, keeping the recovery generally similar or maybe shortening the recovery as you get better at doing them. Let's say that you do eight, you do eight hundreds. Then you would. The one thing that's really key here, Chris, is you always want your athletes to be doing a total of about two thirds of the work of a workout distance should be done at the pace that they want to run, or more. Or, or and that's where we want to be once we get the lights turned on, right? Because we want them to be able to get. And by that I mean that if we're doing. Um, if you're doing 10 reps of, of you want to be able to do, let me, how do I explain this <laughs> appropriately? <laughs> the cumulative distance that you do for your workout, let's say you're going to do four miles of 5K work, which is usually what you want. Two thirds of that, or, you know, basically somewhere in the vicinity of two and a half miles to three miles of that should be the actual 5K paced intervals that you're doing, and the remainder of that should be your recovery. You want to limit how much recovery you get in these sessions when you're running at 5K because, we're because you're trying to extend how long you can do it. So the first workout would be three times a mile. Now, that you may need to walk yourself up that, but three times a mile, and the recovery that you should take should be 400 meters. But I like to give a lot of flex, Chris. This is a place where people don't... The athletes that I've coached over the years have gotten confused about how I uh, how I manage recovery because I don't do a strict recovery based on what others might say. This is when the human body gets physiologically recovered from a mile at your 5K pace. I prefer to look at it like when is my athlete ready to get back on the line and give me a full effort 5K of mile at 5K pace. So I'm less concerned that they get optimal um, that they get too much recovery as I am to make sure we maximize the number of meters that they run at that pace. So I might say to an athlete, give me a 400 jog, but take as much time as you need. It may take you four minutes to get back to the line to get the next rep done. You should never do less than three minutes 
After five minutes, you're probably stretching. You're just kind of standing around and getting cold. It's probably not necessary. So I always say three to five minutes. But I also want my athletes to run a quarter mile, one lap around the track if they're doing it on a track so they can actually be moving a little bit and they don't just stand stock still. And then stop and get water or get some fluid or get whatever you need to. Get your head wrapped around the fact that you've got another one mile run at your 5K pace, which is really, really fucking hard. And you want to try to do three of those. That would be the wor one workout that I would suggest. And maybe that's a master class or a little bit of an advanced workout. But again, you could do that same workout broken down into Ks or 1200s or 800s. Just make sure you get the same amount of volume and you want to adjust your rest as well for that. The other workout, Chris, that I would suggest is basically the Canova Ks, which is a workout we do a lot. This Canova K workout is super amazing because um, it, it's, it doesn't ever give you a rest. And so it's very much like what that Aussie 5K is. Um, but this one, this version of the Canova Ks, I adjust it for the race. So this is Canova Ks, what I would put in parentheses, 5K version, which means that you're going to run five, you're going to run um, five 1Ks. And this is a place where you do this workout not very often. You only do it every once in a while, but you do five 1Ks. So you're doing 100% of the race distance at your at 5K pace. But your recovery is done at a timed pace, Chris. And so kind of like the float was on the Aussie 5K, what we're doing is 1,000 meters at your 5K pace with a 600-meter recovery. And we'll sometimes, what I usually suggest to people if they've done it for the first time is to run at their MGP, their marathon goal pace for their recovery. So this is not a pitter-pat jog. This is figure out, you got to pay attention. Number one, you got to pay attention for that first 200 meters. Are you on pace or have you slowed down too much? How tired did you get from that 1K? You want to get yourself locked and loaded into that rhythm that you need to be for a, a marathon pace. And then you do a full 600 meters at that pace. Um, you should be aerobically recovered by that time. It's pretty amazing how you're, from an oxygen uptake perspective, you're ready to go for another 1K at your 5K pace with that amount of time. Um, and then you just keep repeating those, Chris, on and off and on and off. So you go 5K pace for a K, 6 600 so you're basically doing five miles of work total on the track or on the road you could do this on the road as well if you wanted to another way we've done this chris for people who don't like to do this exactly the same way you can also do this workout and be just as good with it to do 800 on 800 off if you're on a road course that might be easier for folks but the on off is 5k and mgp now next level shit if you want to take this to the level where i where i'm working with elite level 5k runners or 5k athletes that are seasoned and ready and they're getting ready to have a big day we do this workout where they do their half marathon goal pace as their float as their recovery 600 because that's where the real meat is and that that is a really really difficult thing to do because they're not getting fully aerobically recovered by the time they get back up to the line for that next 5k section of 1000 meters so um, that workout is master class that is extremely difficult to do that is a the similar kind of work that an Iliad Kipchoge would be doing or the best in the world are doing um, if you do that at half marathon paces for your for your um, recovery so Chris the thing about that is it's incredibly valuable physiologically a lot of really good things are going on physiologically but you've heard me say this I yell this to my athletes on the track who stop this workout somewhere in the middle and I say you tell me when you're going to fucking stop in a race like you don't have planned breaks. You don't get to do timeout. I'm going to sit on the side. And my coach is going to tell me what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong. The gun goes off and you finish the race. That's it. You don't get a pause. And so these workouts really get our athletes in a mental place where they're 
preparing for what that race requires is being on and focused and driving all the way through it and the recovery is not really a recovery it's part of the workout they're getting physiological benefits from it but a huge psychological boost um, and Chris if people do want to do this workout and they aren't able to handle it right off the bat one thing I could suggest as well is to take that workout and do three reps of this 1k on 600 off and then take a break of about three to five minutes and then come back and do the last two or maybe even add a third rep if you wanted to to try to bridge it to get to that place. So there's lots of ways to break this down. And again, Chris, the most important thing is how many meters can they get in and how much do they stretch themselves because we're trying to work both the psychological and the physiological attributes of what this race is requiring. It's interesting as I reflect on that because it's not often that the pace you need to run for your race sits nicely into an aerobic checkbox. But in the 5K's case, you're basically at your VO2 max. And so it's right in that sweet spot of where you need to be from a physiological standpoint to train, by the way, for a lot of different (laughs) events, but particularly for the 5K because of that reason. So, you know, what you're talking about there is a lot of 5k pace work basically with variations both with a little bit more recovery or easier jogging and then working in a little like faster recoveries where you're doing in and outs with marathon or half marathon pace but the meat of it is you need to be running a lot of 5k pace work and not just because that's the pace you need to run for your race but because that's in a very specific physiological checkbox it's the vo2 checkbox the best pace to run for vo2 at least the science tells us is 3k pace but that's so challenging for so many runners we just had our podcast group do uh, a famous workout we do called ruth's ladder where i made them do a good bit of work they did they did a 600 of 600 of 400 to 300 to 200 and almost to a man or woman, they said, I could not find 3K pace because it is, it is a very hard place to find. But for almost every one of our listeners, 5K pace is absolutely in that VO2 max sweet spot. It is as it's not it. There is a little bit more benefit from <laughs> doing 3K pace work, right. but not enough to warrant the risk of injury or the or that neurological beatdown that happens. Because once folks do that 3K pace, not hitting it and going too fast or not do, or hitting it too slow. It, it, it's difficult psychologically to deal with. It's also kind of burns your system a little bit. It's, a, it's burning it hot. And the 5K allows people to really check that box off, get a whole lot of work done in a place that we don't see, um, where, we, where we see a big bang for the buck and we don't see a lot. We see a lot of people skipping this work and not doing it. And it's really crucial. So that's workouts, specific 5K workouts. And then obviously you would pair that with more strength-based workouts as well where you're doing some threshold work some tempo runs all the same things we talked about with the 800 1500 meters stuff that really applies across any different race distance that you want to run you want to mix in those those aerobic strength threshold workouts as well but but that's it i mean the main message for the 5k is you got to run a lot of 5k pace and work it in in different ways and there's probably an infinite number of workouts we could describe that do that and you can easily find more examples both in this episode but also in our other episode on on quality workouts and then of course all over the internet so it's interesting the other thing i wanted to talk about with the 5k before we move on is prep races because there is definitely something to for this event 
especially for our athletes that don't typically race the 5k of getting them some practice so to speak and you have the ability to not only run a couple different 5ks over a fairly short period of time because you can recover for them but you could also potentially throw in a mile race as an appetizer for your peak 5k so how would you encourage somebody who is looking to run a 5k pr and trying to put together maybe the end of their training block for that where where would some prep races fit into it um so I let's let's walk back, Chris, as we like to do from the way we, as you like to do. I like to do this. Yeah, <laughs> I like to walk back from what my big race is. You maybe you don't like to do this, but um, I just want to make sure that I've got all. Why walking back? I prep it. I make sure that the energy is going to lift to the end of a yeah, cycle. So you have week zero, which would be the race. Correct. Right. And then I go back from there as many weeks as I have. That's the yep. other thing too is a lot of people will say, what's optimal for marathon training? Oh, how much time do you have? Because right. I could write a different schedule for an 18 week or a 16 week or an eight week block as I, I would write a different one for a 24 week block. But right. anyway, you walk from the back, back front and that, in that positioning, what I usually suggest is a race distance down somewhere between seven and 10 days. It could but preferably seven to 10 days, which usually means seven days because most people are racing on a Saturday or a Sunday. And so, um, but uh, is to run a race down. That could either be a one mile or a, th- or a 3K. Um, and if you don't have them available, because very rarely can you find either one of those race distances, do a time trial. Get yourself in a position to do it yourself. And if you can, get a couple of other people to do it. You'd be surprised who in your local running group might be willing to jump in and do something silly. And if some of them won't do it, you could at least ask some of those folks who have done some of the 5k pace work or the faster pace work to pace you and help you get through that time trial. So you could have an opportunity where you could complete that load and complete that workout without actually having a race. So optimally a week before you do a, you do an under distance race, um, typically one down, which is 3K or a mile. That's, that's what I usually suggest. And then before that, I would say another a week prior to that or two weeks prior to that. It doesn't really matter wherever it sits. It would be good to do a prep 5K. And it should really be a race, not a time trial. Um, and the reason for that is is because strategically, both strategically and um, from a resilience standpoint, the 5K is really tough. It's hard to know how to dial it in just right, especially with where your competitors sit. So if you're in a race of a 5K where you're running all by yourself, um, you had better be game on from the very beginning because you're going to have a lot of places where you're going to want to rest and recuperate and recover, and you're going to have a hard time staying focused for the 15 minutes to 25 minutes it might take you to finish this 5K race. And that's a long time to stay mentally engaged for at, at the highest level. So if you're running... With, you want to get in an, ex, in an experience where you've had that happen before, where you've run that time at least. Even if you don't run the exact time you want, you've had an opportunity to run for the duration of the time and the distance that you want to. So you can be ready for the resilience factor of what that's going to take. How hard is it going to be? And believe me, that first one is always so hard. You'll do better. Just doing it again, you'll do much better. Um, at least at least in your ability to be able to manage the race itself. We had an athlete, Chris, um, who did a 5K um, and then uh, two weeks later did another 5K and ran slower. And she was very upset by how that went out and how that played. But her course was much more difficult. Mm-hmm. Some other things were in play that were not um, that 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 played into why she had that re- result. But I guarantee you she was very happy that she did that race two weeks prior because she knew what kind of effort to put in and what to do. So measuring your effort, knowing what you have and having that resilience factor is key. And the second thing is strategy. 
it's because it's so hard to run a 5K at a really high level, Chris, you want to be doing something that I like to call going up and around. And I, I learned this term when I coached at UT and I watched so many great, so many athletes, female athletes especially, who ran in races where they weren't dilly-dicking around, where they got after it, they ran the pace they were supposed to run and people were racing. What I found is if an athlete sat near the back of where their goal time was, got, went out a little bit conservatively for that first you know, 800 meters or so, they found themselves a little further back in the race as they needed to be. And then as they, if, as long as they stayed calm, cool, and collected, and especially if they were um, a, five, a 1500 meter runner who I was moving up to that race distance, I would really need to coach them up on staying focused and not worrying about the fact that they were so far back. Cause so many short distance runners think that if you're not in the race, you can't get there. But in the 5k, you can get to where you need to be. And you only need to be there 800 meters from the finish line. So what we would talk about is going out a little slower, being controlled, feeling like they were in a good spot, checking their competition, seeing how their competition was running, knowing where they were at. And then they basically, after about 800 meters to a thousand in, maybe even 1200 meters in, so three laps in on the race, they were starting to then notice where they were at, make sure they were on pace. And then I would say up and around, which meant look up, pick a jersey color or a person that you knew that was in front of you and spend your time working to catch that runner, to move yourself in a position to get on their shoulder. Once they got on their shoulder, I would always at that point in time yell up and around because what would happen is they would catch that person and then want to sit and rest and relax. And that was not what we were trying to do. We went out conservatively, so we would continue to move up. And everybody at that point, you know, a mile in, mile and a half in, depending on how long it took you to catch that athlete that was up that you were trying trying to catch. Everybody wants to settle. And if you settle, you're slowing down. If you're settling in a 5k, I guarantee fucking to you, you're slowing down. <laughs> There's no way you're accelerating. Yep. So you want to go up and then you want to go around, which means as soon as you catch that person, you should again, pick another person. If you're in the middle of nowhere or and you're running in a race where you don't have bodies that you can help to help you get up and around, then pick a telephone pole up ahead or a turn that you can see that there's a turn up there or a red light or something that's in front of you that you can go run to so you can catch it. You need to catch this thing, right? When you catch it, then you take your turn and you do it again. You look up and you go up and around. You came around that turn, you go up to the next thing and you try to, it's kind of like your idea of going fishing, Chris, yep. but it's more along the lines of a long sustained fish. It's like a long pull through where you're moving up. You're not settling. You're staying in a place where you're continuously picking the pace up and catching and catching and catching. Now, this is very difficult for a 10K because the 10K is long enough that it makes it hard. Um, but, the, but the 5K, this, this strategy is perfect for a 5K where you get up, catch your competitor or get to that, that, that landmark and then do it again and then do it again all the way up until you got about 800 meters to go or you're less than a mile into the race. And then it should just be pushing towards home. You want to start really doing the work to get yourself to the finish line. Those of you who heard... Um, our podcast listeners heard me, our podcast training group listened, and I gave them a suggestion on how to run the, the one-mile time trial. I talked about that last 100, that last 400 meters of running each 100 meters faster than the 100 meters before it. Same thing as you talked about with fishing, Chris, where you're, you're just pushing again and again and again, so you're relentlessly going up and around throughout the entire race. And that's basically how you, how you approach it. So you want to have had a race where you had a chance to practice that strategy to gain facility at it. So when you do the command performance race, wherever that is in your cycle, you're better off and ready for it. Yeah, it's about focus. You know, I know in both 5Ks and 10Ks, I struggled early on in my experience with them of staying focused in the middle. 
you know, for the 5K for me, it was the second mile. For the 10K, it was mile three and four, where you've gotten out, you know, you have that, that, that initial adrenaline from the start has kind of worn off, and you think you're going the same <laughs> pace. And so you, it's that idea of, like, you can settle and somehow stay relaxed before a final kick in that final mile. But in a 5K, you just can't. You got to stay on it. You got to stay on it. You got to stay on the edge pretty much the entire time. And if if you lose focus or settle or get comfortable at any point, you're going backwards. And Chris, it's the athlete's responsibility. In that <laughs> scenario we were talking about with the athlete that we talked about who did not have the successful second race, <laughs> we also found a chink in her armor too, didn't we? And that, that she got into no woman's land and she didn't have anybody to race. And she said afterwards, I think I probably fell asleep and I probably didn't do it. So... At right. the end of the day, you can't blame your competition because you want the number at, that's at the back of your name, right? You want to have run the time that you want to run. You can't count on others to do that for you. You must make that happen yourself or you'll be disappointed, period. Like that, It's on you. You can't expect. It's a lot easier if you have people to run with or people to catch. But if you don't, you still need to do that work because it's not just going to come to you. Not in a 5K. It's too hard, too painful. You're on the edge for too long. You have to be really engaged and really go after it. And it takes practice. So that's why we tell you to do the prep races. And the more you do of these, the better you'll get at it. I figured it out myself in the 10K better than the 5 for sure. But just basically getting at bats. Yep. Now, anything else on the 5K, Steve, before we transition to talk about 10 half? Um, no, just I just think that. I want to reiterate, in my opinion, the 5,000 is the greatest race on <laughs> that there is. I'm, I was my favorite race. It was the hardest to get right. I had a lot of success at it myself, but it was so much fun because it was really that mix of running, hard running that the strongest survived. And, the, and you, you had to be able to kick off fast paces, which was so much fun for me. And those who maybe are still afraid of it, what I would suggest is this. Just keep doing them. Just keep doing them. Just keep signing up for 5K races. I think the other thing, the, I think the other thing, Chris, is that the best 5K workout you could possibly do is a 5K race. <laughs> so if you ever just feel like I don't want to do a 5K workout, sign up for a 5K race, any local 5K race. You're going to get a whole lot out of it. You're going to learn a lot. And if you do them consistently, you're going to start to improve just based on facility, just based on having run in them and figuring out how to run them right. You can really do some damage and you can really cut down some PRs. And the reason why a lot of people's 5K PR is so soft is because they never work at it. And they never race them, and, and the race is so difficult to get right that I suggest racing a lot. Take That is a race distance that cannot hurt you. I wouldn't suggest that you do it every single week because how are you going to get your long runs in? And the long run is more important. But a, a, a 5K a once a month, that's a recipe for success. I mean, at, at least you should do one every two, week, every, every two months or so. Or be sure that you've got a steady diet of 5K work in your cycle. But if you don't want to do the 5K training, then just sign up for a 5K race and you'll be you'll be cooking with grease. It'll be good. It reminds me, I have a woman in my group that I'm coaching now. When we sat down for our one-on-one earlier this summer, I asked her what her goal was, and she said, "I want to win a 5K." <laughs> and and that that's nothing. I that's not something I usually hear from from the athletes in my world. And it was it was awesome and refreshing to hear that. And this is a woman who's. You know, she's fast, certainly, but she's not somebody you would point to to say that person's going to win a 5K necessarily. And that's not throwing stones. That's just because her background, you know, is, is a little bit different. And she's, 
and she's still developing at that distance, but that's what she wants to do. And so, so that's what we're working on. And she's work racing with one about every month and she's intentionally choosing ones with little smaller fields to give herself <laughs> a shot and to learn how to race and tactics and all of this stuff. But anyway, it's really interesting and really fun. And I'm like, that's, you know, if you're sitting here listening to this and you're a half marathon or marathon or typically, and you haven't had a dedicated 5k training block in years or ever, then that's a sign. If you can hear my voice that you need one and you need one soon. And maybe after your next half marathon or marathon, that's what you do. I cannot agree more. I am 100% down for that. We, we believe that all of these races are, we don't, we don't just want you to be track fans because we think it's really cool. We also want you to participate and knowing what to do in a 5k and being more, having more facility at the 5k will become, make you a big fan of the race as well because it's, you will understand just how amazing a well-run 5,000 is when you see it. And it's fun. So, okay, let's switch to the 10k half and we may or may not get all the way through 10k half in our allotted time, but I want to at least start it and first ask the question, which we've already alluded to, which is why did we group these two together? We grouped them together, Chris, because they're kind of in the same physiological box. 10K is just really is just outside of the VO2 max range. Um, there are also races are run really similarly in terms of the way that you would strategize to run it. You, you can ebb and flow, you can come and go, you can surge and relax and you can stay. You, the race is always still out in front of you. You can go get it. You, if you didn't miss the break, if you, there's no break to miss. There's no, I fell asleep for a half mile. I, you can always make something up in both of these two races. So we grouped them number one, because they make sense physiologically to group together, and that may be counterintuitive to a lot of people, but we really believe this, that they are much more similar. Um, there's also a huge value in the entire continuum, as we're finding out as we are putting more and more of our athletes through workouts that range through these paces, Chris, where you did a workout the other day where you had a cut down, mile down, where they ran through some of these pace ranges. I do that a lot where I'll ask people to do mile cut downs or I'll ask them to do 2K cutdowns or two-mile cutdowns where we're running through these pace ranges from half marathon down through 15K. We've got an entire workout that we focus at 15K paces because it's a special physiological box that gets checked off, and then down into 10K. And so they're really of a family in terms of huge benefits run all along that continuum from an aerobic development standpoint and aerobic power standpoint and the ability for the aerobic system to function in a really efficient way. And so half marathon fits, checks off uh, an interesting physiological checkbox, but really there are a lot of checkboxes all the way down there as the athletes run. There's a lot of value all the way through that range. There's a lot of sweet spots through there, Chris, between 10K and half marathon that would really be valuable for a runner to run. There's almost like no bad paces from 10K to half marathon. You're getting a huge, huge influx or money in the bank aerobically when you do those that work yeah you've got lactate threshold in there you've got aerobic threshold the other part to me as just in my experience as a coach and athlete as well and i've done more half marathons in my experience as an athlete than i have any other race distance 40 plus half marathons maybe more i don't remember exactly but my best half marathons have come on the back of a 10k block Mm -hmm. So just my experience, both as an athlete and as a coach observing it, 
you would think it would be the opposite that a good half marathon would come on the back of a marathon type training block but what i've found is that taking 10k fitness and extending it to the half marathon by adding the appropriate volume need you need to around it in your long runs and so forth gives me a better bang for the, my buck as a as a coach and as an athlete than taking marathon fitness and trying to bring it down if that makes sense absolutely i mean there's two points here you know one is the point of the one is the point of seeing um these they're basically 20 seconds apart for most of our runners per mile right so yep. that that your half mar- your 10k pace and your half marathon pace this won't be true for our runners who are on the slower end they may be up to 25 seconds chris i think but for most people it's between 20 seconds um, between what your 10k pace per mile is and your half marathon pace per mile so it's a there's there's that doesn't sound as much as when you look at the paces right so it's a really a pretty tight window so a lot of good work can get done the other thing chris is i like to bring to to bring so there's so you're getting a lot of benefit from that, but it's also think about how much easier it is if, on an easy run to go. When you say, oh, I'm going a little too fast. I'm going to slow off 20 seconds. That's usually like, whoa, that is way easier. And anybody that runs a well-run 10K, shifting and slowing back down to going 20 seconds per mile slower, holy crap, that's a whole lot easier and something that's sustainable for t- more than twice the distance, right? It, 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 it really is. Um, the other thing, Chris, and this is sort of a, hopefully I don't get too much grief for this, but I've always been a big, really, really against this idea that there would be a qualifier to qualify for the U.S. Olympic trials in the marathon. You can use a half marathon to get qualified for the marathon. And the reason why I say that is because every collegiate worth their fucking dollar can anybody collegiate 10k guy or girl who's any good at all (laughs) should be able if they were good at doing the 10k. All they got to do is do nothing else but wait two weeks, maybe do one or two long runs. or, or wait. You don't even need to do more long runs. Most of them are already doing sufficient long run distance. Right. But if you can run a decent 10K, all these slappies should be able to get qualified for the fucking marathon trials. I would tell people, like, oh, just, okay, right now, go get your OTQ. Go get your OTQ because you're cheating. It's so easy <laughs> to get your OTQ. Now, they've moved that a fat to a faster time this year, so it's a little more. But I still... And we've seen it play out. I've seen my own athletes do it. I'm not. I'm against it all the way now. There's no correlation between your half marathon time and your full marathon time. There is minimal correlation <laughs> if you don't do the work, right? Yeah. While there's a huge correlation between what you can do from a 10K and what you can do for a half marathon. Because even though it's twice the distance, nearly everybody is doing, who's running good 10Ks is doing a 14 to 16 mile long run anyway. And so they're already doing 10 half marathon work. So, so much of what's actually being done in the fundamentals of training, Chris, fall into where these two races would be grouped in the same place. Yeah, I remember when I did, when I ran my half marathon PR... It came in January after we had done a cross-country block in the fall before that, working specifically on 10K, 5K to 10K cross-country distance. And I remember that season not doing that many long runs. I mean, I'm used to doing 18, 20-mile long runs regardless, pretty much year-round, and didn't have that many in the in the bank after that block and didn't have a lot of time before the half, before it was time to roll plus holidays and all that. So it didn't really get a ton of over distance long runs in. And I remember going into that day thinking, Oh man, like this, <laughs> you know, like I, I'm good for 10 K after that. We'll see what <laughs> happens. And 
sure enough, that's the best half I've ever run because exactly what you said, which is that I had the history in the distance. And for a lot of us who are training for marathons at other times, that carries over to some extent. That aerobic development carries over. And then it's about being sharp, you know, for the, the speed, for the 10K stuff so that, you know, it'll carry up. So, so yeah, the half marathon is the easiest race <laughs> that there is. It's, I, I, what I, I'm always you like, say that. I, I, <laughs> Listen, I I represented a U.S. team. I, I was I you made a world team. Did, I got a vest in this distance, in and I still don't world, have a ton. I still don't have a ton. World half I, I don't have a true. ton. Of, I don't have a ton of respect for the race distance. I I know that a well-run half marathon is not easy to do, and that it is um that it is a unique distance in and of itself. But I do think um it's the easiest of all those races because you get to spend so much time at a pace that feels relatively comfortable. That 20 seconds difference for the extended period, you don't really start hurting, I don't think, until at 9 or 10 miles or so. It does get really tough from then on, but that's a hugely disproportionate amount of time as in a 10K where you would be hurting at least at the halfway. You're wondering whether you can make it at those paces to the end. And almost every half I ever ran, it was always like I got to 10 miles okay. And then I, I then it really hurt really badly. And in that way, yeah, the last half, the last... 5k is really really tough but up to that point it was um it, it was like a fast glorified long run like a fast closed long run but then it hurt really really bad after that yeah. and all that to say we're basically telling you if you're doing a half we want you to follow a 10k based program yes we'll talk a little bit about the tweaks that might be related to the half itself but we'll do that next time as we always do steve we've gone too long today already so we're going to wrap it at that with that intro to the 10k and half and we'll finish episode 88 here we'll pick up the 10k and half all part three and see where we can get to on the next one with the marathon as well as always you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on instagram twitter or facebook at roguerunning until next time we'll talk to you soon